Hey everybody, I'm Mark Youngman. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Church, and it is so good to be with you this weekend. I'm also coming with you to you with a heavy heart today, and I just want to take a moment, if we could, before we get into today's message, to spend a moment in prayer for Uvalde, Texas, the community that was affected by the violence this, this last week. So would you stop and pray with me, please? God, we do indeed come to you with heavy hearts today. We are a part of a nation and a part of a community and a part of a world where violence still exists. And our prayer, God, is that you would wrap yourself around that community in Texas that has been, been hurt so badly this week by all the other places of, of violence in our, in our nation and around the world. God, we pray for, for healing in the hearts of young people and families and God, we pray that even in this darkest time, we would have a sense that your light is shining there. God, come and shine your light in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a word of scripture today. We've been in the Gospel of John, and so this is from John chapter 8. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. <laughs> that one gets me every time. This is such a good story. And I love a good story that challenges the way we see the world. A story that moves us and doesn't leave us where we started. This is what preachers and teachers try to do. We tell stories to hopefully point to bigger truths. In times like this, when we feel constantly barraged by signs of brokenness in the world around us, we need every reminder that Jesus is still at work, that Jesus sees the pain of the broken and points to a better story. Now, when I tell a story, I really want to get it right. It's important to me, and that little quirk probably holds me back sometimes. Like, for instance, it's hard to exaggerate the size of the fish you just caught when you didn't catch any fish. <laughs> So my story would be, in this example, I went fishing the other day. I didn't catch any fish. I went home. You know what that is? That is a bad story. But I don't always get the story right either. One time I was sharing an analogy from another preacher. He described a drink from Starbucks called a macchiato. You might know this drink. He was describing an iced macchiato, an iced caramel macchiato. Mm. He talked about all the delicious layers of the drink that ends up creating stripes that you can see through the clear cup. He said, 
that's where a macchiato gets its name. It means stripes. So I shared that story several years back. Now, in order to go on, I have to share a tidbit that may seem completely unrelated, and I can't really prepare you for it, so I'll just say it. I have a friend who has zebras living on his farm here in Middle Tennessee. Maybe not that weird, but soon after I shared this Starbucks story, one of his zebras gave birth to a baby. You know what he named it? Macchiato. Yeah, because of its stripes. You know what macchiato actually means? Not stripes. It means stained. When he discovered this, I think my friend was a little disappointed in me. And I was disappointed in the preacher whose example I had quoted, and in myself for not fact-checking. I don't always get the story right, but a good story is not a straight line from A to Z anyway. A good story contains mistakes and wrong turns. Let's get back to John chapter 8. As we spend concentrated time in specific parts of the Bible like we've been doing with the book of John this year, it's important to catch some of the clues that don't look like clues. For instance, if you're reading along in your Bible today, you'll probably see something like this before the story that I just shared with you. This story not included in some of the earliest manuscripts. It may even have some brackets around the story starting in the last verse of chapter 7. What that means is that there have been handwritten copies of John discovered that didn't include this story. They were all written out word by word, copied from one version to another version. So there's lots of room for discrepancies and misspellings. Could you imagine the scribe falling asleep right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and the pen just goes down? <laughs> but this story wasn't included in this spot on a consistent basis until the 4th century. But it existed, just not always in this spot. Anyway, I could do my best to give you my take on why I think this story isn't exactly the right spot. That this account belongs on this page where you find it in your Bible. But that would get super boring for most of us, and we don't have time. I believe that God works through all of our quirks and imperfections to tell the story that he needs us to hear. What I want to focus on today is this. Jesus writes new stories for us all the time. It's how I'm here, honestly. I don't know where I'd be right now living the story I was once living, but it wouldn't be here. I'm guessing that's why you're here today as well. Jesus is writing new stories. I like to picture it like this. If my story was written out, again, probably super boring, I didn't catch any fish, but just, just say that it was written out. I like to imagine that there would be a string of places where it says, this was not in the original version of Mark's life. In other words, this is where Jesus did a rewrite. The whole thing about storytelling is that if you can see the end from the beginning and nothing really happens, no one cares about that story. A good story has ups and downs and twists and turns, brokenness and failure and hope and perseverance. I can hear you saying right now, I have a really good story then, and you do. People have said that Jesus was a great storyteller. People came from all around to hear him. Sometimes it was a direct teaching like, you have heard this, but I'm telling you this. Like, you have heard do not murder, but I say do not be angry with someone. Sometimes it was a story he told, like a prodigal son who blows his inheritance and is still welcomed home by a loving father. Sometimes, 
Like in this passage, he taught by example. I think that in all these ways of teaching, and indeed with his whole life, death and resurrection, Jesus is the great re-story teller. Let's see how that works. Jesus went into the temple courts and sat down to teach. Reading between the lines, we see that not everyone loved it when Jesus taught. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were often offended and threatened by Jesus' teaching. It says they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So, either Jesus would disregard the law of Moses, or he would give the order for her execution. And neither one looks good on him. They felt they had him in a corner. I see this happening today. Anytime we think we can force Jesus into our system and way of thinking, he breaks through with a whole new possibility. And he's about to do that here. First, let's explore. What's the anticipated outcome here? How does this story end? Like, think about it. If you were standing with the guys who dragged this woman before Jesus, while she's still standing there with Jesus, and, and they're still watching, and you ask them, how do you think this story is going to end? They would say, oh, she dies in the end. And it clearly doesn't matter to them what happens to her. She is an object lesson to them. She doesn't have a name. They call her this woman. They see the end of the story for this woman to be her unavoidable death. Jesus doesn't accept that ending to the story. Instead, Jesus rewrites it. He says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And they're thinking, wait, 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 wait. This is about her, not me. There's a system for this kind of thing. We catch the sinner, we accuse the sinner, we bring the sinner in for justice. And throwing a stone, the men would be condemning themselves. So the men dropped their stones and left. I have to believe that at least one of those men took that moment to really consider what this meant. Maybe one of them didn't even want to throw the stone. Maybe he was caught up in this belief that faithfulness meant casting a stone at a sinner, but he didn't want to hurt anyone. Could that moment actually have changed his life? Did he leave the temple courts and seek forgiveness from his brother or from his wife? Was this a moment that wasn't included in the early manuscripts of his story? This will have to be a whole other sermon someday, but I'd love to keep following this man, who I imagine has just dropped the stone of condemnation and faced his own sin. This is why I think this is so important, whether it happened in this particular moment or not. This is a no-brainer, but hear this. Grace for those who are struggling is easier to come by when you have faced your own struggles. Cast a stone and it will hit you right in between the eyes. Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. With the condition that Jesus gave, there's only one person who could have still been holding a stone before that woman. And it's Jesus himself, the one without sin. Of course, he was busy rewriting something in the dirt instead of grabbing a rock. He knew that soon he'd be taking on the guilt and shame of all the sins represented in that temple court. 
Through his death and resurrection, he showed us his desire to restore and restory our lives and that of the whole world. Neither do I condemn you. This woman's guilt no longer defines her. We've been calling her the woman caught in adultery. We haven't allowed her to have a new name. What if you were simply known by your worst sin or your worst moment? The man who stole from his business partner, the married woman who reached out to an old flame, the student who cheated, the one who bullied someone into depression. I mean, this is real stuff, real names, and we carry them around. In the Jesus rewrite, our guilt no longer defines us. Now, this can be hard to accept, I get it, especially if you've been carrying around this guilt for years and years or decades and decades. It's really difficult to believe that you can be defined by Jesus instead. We feel like it's got to cost us something. And the cost is giving up that which seems to hold you back from the better story that Jesus has written for you. So next, Jesus says to the woman, Go now and leave your life of sin. In the Jesus rewrite, we have to be honest about the past and the present so that we can drop it in the dirt and go live a better story with Jesus. Jesus saw the possibility of a new life for the woman, away from the sin that had become her identity. She put on a new story with a better ending. So we ought to be referring to her not as the woman caught in adultery, but instead as the redeemed daughter of the king, beloved child, one who is cleansed and free from guilt. And because of that drastic restory that Jesus offers, the old identity it can't come along. For you, the story ends in a new life that wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts of your life. No one else saw it coming, but you know what? Jesus did. Some of us are convinced that our story is done. We messed up, we took wrong turns, we walked in the wrong door. Internal and external voices have thrown us on the ground to face our accusers. Some of us can't even fathom a life beyond this current moment of crisis. And Jesus says, hold on. What's about to follow was not in the earlier manuscript of your life. It was added later. It was changed, edited, and revised by a Savior whose sole purpose is coming to earth was to redeem you out of your brokenness and to restore your life. No one knows what Jesus was doing with his finger in the dirt that day. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's tons of theories, but no one really knows. But what he did with his presence and with his words was changing the ending of that woman's story. What he does with his presence and words as we gather is able to change the ending of our stories too. I'm going to be honest with you. I came back to this message the morning after the elementary school shooting in Texas. I thought, this actually is the same story we've been telling over and over again as I wake up to another shooting. I think it's exhausting, right? I'm done with this story of violence and innocent people being killed for no reason. What I believe, though, is that Jesus is done with this story, too. I don't know exactly how he will do it, but it's why we're here, to allow Jesus to tell a better story through us and through this church. It's never been more important. Pray with me, come Lord Jesus, change the ending of this story. Amen.